Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. This is Rami Alijil, and welcome to the People Processes podcast, where we dive into the updates, interviews, and yes, processes that will help your organization thrive. My goal is to help HR managers and business owners create an environment where their people are their organization's competitive advantage. And today, we're going to be answering questions around employee handbooks. The whole week has been on empl- on the handbook in general. Uh, parts one and part two were a self-audit to look at the systems around keeping your handbook compliant and useful and meeting its goals and defining those goals. So today, we're going to be hitting on the questions we've gotten around handbooks during the week. Don't forget, we post to LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and I would love to hear from you on there with any of your questions. You can also subscribe to us by going to peopleprocesses.com, where you'll receive special subscriber-only content for free. People Processes is also available wherever you get your podcast, 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 and it syndicates on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and Stitcher Radio. So subscribe on there, and you'll be updated whenever we post a new episode. So... The first question of the day. We recently made some changes to our handbook policies regarding benefits offered to employees and have a disclaimer stating, quote, the company reserves the exclusive right to change or terminate any benefits or related policy at any time with accordance to applicable law. Are we required to have employees sign a new acknowledgement of the handbook because of these recent changes? Ooh, good question. First of all, good job on you for updating your handbook and for having an exclusive right, uh, you know, to, 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 to state from our audit that these do not limit you or form a contract that you're able to change them at any time. But, yes, you do have, you should be getting a uh, signed acknowledgement notating that they were aware of, of any new policies or changes to existing policies. Any new or changed policy should be provided to employees through the distribution of a new handbook accompanied by a brief memo directing the employees to the locations of the changes and requesting an updated acknowledgement signature. Without distributing and getting proof of the receipt, the change policies may be difficult to point to when correcting, disciplining, or terminating an employee. Most employers update their handbooks every one to two years, but if there's a major change to an integral policy, they may be distributed separately and added to the handbook as an addendum until the next version. While not required, handbooks are a best practice in order to minimize risk. Clearly articulated and distributed handbooks can supplement a defense against many compliance issues, such as, but not limited to, claims of sexual harassment, wrongful termination, and discrimination. To answer your question more directly, any change needs to have one of these um, uh, additional acknowledgements. Now we're going to talk, I will say... Handbooks are not legally mandatory. It contains whatever information an employer wishes to impart to its employees. Handbooks are traditionally separate from benefits summaries and other health and welfare plan materials, although the handbook may discuss employee status, full-time, part-time, and may refer employees to benefit plan materials. So if this is just a change in, like, coverages, as a rule, your handbook wouldn't change because of that in traditional design. Your handbook says the coverages are defined over here, eligibility is defined in this, um, and you, you leave those separate, um, mainly for that reason, the benefits change all the time. I don't know how your handbook specifically is laid out, but if you are actually defining your benefits in there, and this is counting as your summary plan description, uh, or your wrap document or any of those kind of things, there's a bit more to it. So normally handbooks direct people to those benefit pages. Um, uh, other things that are not normally included, you don't normally put job positions or titles in there. Those should be maintained separately in job descriptions, right? 
So I hope that was a little helpful. Um, the general policies and procedures that should be in there outside of benefits and uh, as we talk about job titles, your definition of commonly used terms, explanation of whom the handbook uh, and, and its policies apply to, at will employment, disclaimer that the handbook is not a contract, anti-harassment, equal opportunity, leave of absence and family leave, FMLA, family medical leave policy, if it's applicable, maternity leave policy, drug-free workplace policy, if you're doing that, standards of conduct, timekeeping and overtime, and PTO policies. Those are the key ones that are going to always require an update and new acknowledgement. If it's one of those, you need to do a uh, an acknowledgement. And in general, anything you change, you should do with a memo attaching it. Hope that was helpful. Now we got a little off topic there, but in general, yes, change, get a new acknowledgement, especially on those key terms we went over. And if it's uh, about benefits, it probably shouldn't be in your handbook. It should, it should be on your SPD or something like that, unless it was a change in maybe eligibility for benefits, in which case, again, that would definitely uh, apply to uh, an update that you need a, a, a signature on. Okay, next question. We are looking at our handbook and wanted to just double check our table of contents to make sure we weren't missing any important topics to cover. Could you provide a list of handbook topics? Sure, okay. Uh, keep in mind that these change, right? So we went through a system in our audits, part one and part two, of how to keep track of this stuff. But this is basically a, a table of contents for a modern um, employee handbook. So first up, uh, a welcome. So that would be the purpose of the employee handbook. You want to define that out right there at the beginning. Uh, corporate vision and mission, employment at will statement. We've talked about that. The handbook is not a contract statement and a reservation or rights statement. That would be your welcome section. Then you would cover your key employment policies. So that's initial period of employment, equal employment opportunity, general anti-harassment, including an ADA statement, sexual harassment, drug and alcohol-free workplace, smoking policy, no solicitation, no distribution, safety and health, open-door policies, and compliant procedures. Then you would go to your general working policies. So that would be confidential information, dress code, standard of conduct, code of ethics, business expense reimbursement, company rules, bulletin boards, computer electronic mail and voicemail, company vehicles, personal phone calls, workplace violence policy, a discipline policy, an attendance policy, call-in procedures, personnel file information, requirements for any medical exams if you have those, and a use of mobile phones policy. Those are all under your general working policies. Then your employee development, that's going to be your performance evaluations and promotional opportunities and transfer policy. You want to cover those. Then hours and attendance, so that's your hours of operations, employment classifications, exempt versus non-exempt, full-time and part-time, temporary employment, independent contractors, absence and lateness policy, severe weather and emergency situations policy, meals and rest breaks, and an overtime policy. That's all in the hours and attendance section. Then pay periods and paychecks. By the way, we're about halfway through. Uh, all of this is on our site and uh, on paper processes. You can go through this list, compare it to your current one, see if you're missing anything. I know this is hard to get audio-wise. On your pay periods and paychecks, you want to comply with wage and hour laws that you intend to comply with them. An equal pay statement, your actual pay periods defined, your timekeeping policies and systems defined, and your deductions from pay policies and procedures defined. Next up is your leave of absence and time off. You want to define your holidays, vacation and personal leave, sick leave, funeral or bereavement leave, 
jury and witness duty, military reserves and National Guard, and finally FMLA. Then your benefits, which normally is a general benefits policy, uh, maybe a breakout very briefly that you offer group health insurance, disability and life insurance, retirement savings, government required coverages, insurance premiums during a leave of absence. This is big to define, right? If you're going to take FMLA leave, you have to pay the whole cost, something like that, or during a sabbatical, insurance premiums during a leave of absence. And then educational assistance and reimbursement, if you're offering that, that should also be defined in here. Next up comes employment separation. So um, define separation of employment, reference checks, post-employment inquiries, uh, non-compete and conflict of interest policy, and the separation and last paycheck and your rehire policy. Then last up is your agreements. So it's your acknowledgement and receipt of the employee handbook and your non-compete and anti-piracy agreement about the handbook itself. Hope that was helpful. Uh, it's a long list. I know, again, check out the website. We got it all spelled out on there, peopleprocesses.com. Uh, episode number 13. We have two more questions. Um, they're shorter, and I hope these are these are helpful. The first one is, we are a small company of 40 employees. Are there policies we should have in place for cybersecurity? Can we make employee training on cybersecurity mandatory? Uh, yeah, yeah, do that. Companies of all sizes are smart to be concerned about cybersecurity, especially in light of the well-publicized ransomware attacks like the WannaCry attack back in 2017. There are steps you can take to reduce the risks as the first line of defense against data breaches. Employees are your first line of defense. That's what you got to understand. No matter your tech, training your employees is key. You need to ensure that they're identified, to, uh, they're trained to identify and report suspicious emails and other security threats. The decision on whether cybersecurity train, training should be mandatory is, of course, up to you. But my recommendation is, heck yes, if they're touching a computer that's connected to your network, whether it's their computer or yours, please do so. You can consider, one way we do it, and we recommend our clients do it, assign the employees a training course and allow them ample time to complete it on their, you know, uh, at their convenience uh, and add it to your employee uh, new hire onboarding activities. Absolutely. First, when they're, when they're getting hired, it's a good time to hit them. So that training should hit a couple things. Uh, it should train employees to just be skeptical in general. Uh, if they receive an email, view a web page, see a social media post with like a too-good-to-be-true offer, think before clicking. Report the emails that are suspicious. A lot of times one employee will get a suspicious email long before anybody else. So give employees concrete information on how to report emails that may be phishing or fraudulent. And then just in general to ask questions whenever they open email, like, do I recognize the sender's email address? Do I recognize anyone else copied on the email? Is the domain name in the email address spelled correctly, or is it just close to the actual URL? Most phishing attempts are easy to spot once you understand that no one has Amazon.com. They have Amazon with an M. Just take a look. And would I normally receive an email from this individual? So make a training around that or purchase one or let us know we have some of those. Um, Poplar Financial does. Remind employees that they should never click on a link in an email or open an attachment until they are absolutely certain that the link or attachment is valid. You can consider a simple reminder like think, don't click, even though that's cliche. Uh, you can include that in informational emails about cybersecurity, and they're actually very effective. It's just a matter of trying to get them to think before they click the button, and most of them will realize the problem. Finally, I do recommend having a published cybersecurity policy. Include it in your employee handbook and be sure to review it with current and new employees. Your policy, whether if it's a more in-depth one or whether it's a quick one in your handbook, try to have a guideline for IT assets and mobile devices, access control, like when and where they should access things, 
a maintenance of antivirus software, and then even a statement about contractors, vendors, and outsourcing, like what information you can give to them if your organization is large enough that other people are making those decisions. Uh, finally, have some repercussions for noncompliance in there, right? Your policy should include information about those repercussions. Bottom line, yeah, yeah, have the training, make it mandatory, in my opinion. It's your call, though. Next up, uh, the final question. We are revising our employee handbook, and it was recommended that we include an NLRA savings clause. What do you recommend? Um, okay. So first of all, for those of you who don't know, a blanket savings clause in relation to the NLRA, the National Labor Relations Act, is a clause added to the beginning of an employee handbook in an effort to shield employer liability from unlawfully overbroad policies that violate Section 7 of the NLRA. Um Commonly, this is like maybe you have a policy that says don't discuss your wages with anybody else. You could possibly put that in your handbook. And then you put a savings clause in the front that's like, but if this is illegal, you can do it. Uh, Macy's Inc. used the following disclaimer in an introductory page of its handbook. Quote, nothing in the code or the policies it incorporates is intended or will be applied to prohibit employees from exercising their rights protected under federal labor law, including concerted discussions of wages, hours, and other terms and conditions of employment. This code is intended to comply with all federal, state, and local laws, including but not limited to, FT to the FTC, endorsement guidelines, and the NLRA, and will not be applied or enforced in a manner that violates such laws. So, that's a pretty darn broad statement. However, an administrative law judge, we're going to call him an ALJ, in a lawsuit against Macy's decided in 2015 that the savings clause did not neutralize the employer's unlawful policies. According to the ALJ and the NLRB, um, the NLRB has strict policies for employer to reject unlawful rules. The NLRB has stated, and the case in particular that they stated this is Direct TV versus NLRB, um, links on our website. In order for a savings clause to serve as a defense to an unlawful labor practice finding, it must be timely, unambiguous, specific in nature to the coercive conduct, and untainted by other lawful conduct, other unlawful conduct. There must be adequate publication to the clause to the employees involved, and the language must be assure, must assure employees that, going forward, the employer will not interfere with the exercise of their Section 7 rights. Since, according to the NLRB, a savings clause must be specific in nature to the coercive conduct and expressively reference an employee's rights protected by the NLRA, savings clauses cannot be written in a gener generic manner, period, especially when their unlawful restrictions are very specific. Um, a great case for this is First Transit, Inc. versus the NLRB. Uh, link on our website. Check it out. It's actually kind of a fun case to read, in my opinion. But basically, you can't just put a savings clause that says, if we broke any laws, we didn't, we're not going to enforce them. It has to say like very specific information. So consult with an attorney. If your legal counsel is saying you need a savings clause, just make sure that it is super defined. Uh, it has to work with the targeted and specific thing that you think may be in a gray area. And that's normally where these do still come in. If you're in a very unusual industry and there's a kind of general practice of um, something that maybe is a little different than most other organizations and, and industries, and you're concerned that it interferes with a particular NLRB Act, um, but it's in a gray area, there are a lot of court cases in process, or no one's really brought it up yet, defined it, that's where a savings clause is useful. But in most cases, people like to stick them in the front of their handbooks thinking it's going to be a catch-all, and it never is. 
Okay. So that's my opinion. Again, I'm not a lawyer. Follow your employer mint law uh, practice. Broad note, use as a lawyer specializing in labor and employment law. Um, I know all of us have business attorneys. Those are great. Uh, but this is a very specific nitty-gritty thing. So get a, get a lawyer that specializes in this, that does it every day. It's going to make a big difference. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it for uh, our employee handbook Q&A. If you have questions, send it to us on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. I would love to answer them and help out on the next episode. Thank you so much for your time listening. Go out there, get your work done, and have a great day. This is Rami Alijil signing off for People Processes. Thanks.